We've just been through the heroes of the faith in chapter 11. So let's find that so that we can read it together. So we're going to be reading from Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 4. And remember, whenever we come to a passage like this, we're trying to find what the central idea, what the central message is. And so you're going to see things here like, let us do this, and let us do that, and run, and... What we're going to try and work out is what is the core thing that God wants us to do, and how do these other things support that core thing? So, Hebrews 12, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Sometimes feels like that, doesn't it? And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So we can see there in verse 1, let us lay aside. Then in, later on it says, let us run with endurance. And then it says, looking to Jesus. And then it says, considering. How do all of these things fit together? And what is the central idea in this passage? Because that's what will bring the, the transformation. So I'd like to start off by talking about expectations. I'm sure many of you have had expectations that just haven't measured up to reality. Have you had that before? I mean, I often think of young couples when they come to me for marriage counseling. And sometimes it's very clear that the, the young lady, there's some things that she doesn't like about her husband, but she's pretty sure that she can change him. So she has this expectation that she can alter her husband. That's why you get married in front of an altar, isn't it? No, it's not. But she has that expectation, and the reality is, she's not going to be able to change him. She can't change him. And then I see these young men as well, and they're just all completely starstruck. They think that their wives are the most beautiful-looking creatures on the planet, and they expect that their wives are never going to change. <laughs> but they do. They do. We all change. We all age. We all change shape. Things happen to us. And so we have these expectations. And there is a strong belief that something is going to happen in the future or is going to be the case. But how often does reality actually live up to our expectations? It's not often. Why is that? Because we seldom have realistic expectations. And if we're going to have realistic expectations, we must have an accurate perception of reality. Isn't that so important? That we would perceive things as they really are. But because we don't, we set ourselves up for all sorts of trouble and disappointment by having expectations that are not grounded in reality. For example, if I go on a camp and I'm expecting it to be a holiday camp and it's a training boot camp, then I'm going to have a hard time on that camp, aren't I? Because my expectation is completely wrong. And if I'm expecting a race that I'm in to be a sprint, and it turns out to be a marathon, once again, 
the false expectation has not prepared me for the real, the reality of the race that I'm actually in. And so the Jewish Christians that are addressed here in Hebrews, they'd endured persecution for their faith. Remember we read about that in chapter 10. It says, um, you, you stood in a great contest. You had your possessions and your property confiscated for being a Christian. And at that time, they did stand. They were true. But now, we realize that they're trying to avoid persecution by going back to their Old Testament religion, to their Jewish religion. And it's strange. Because if they had stood before, why were they tempted to capitulate now? What was the story? And I think it's because they must have formed some sort of false expectation based on an unrealistic perception of the true Christian life. And so what the writer does here in Hebrews is he sets about painting a true picture of reality before presenting the true expectation, and that's what we're coming to today. What was the reality that the Hebrews needed to see? Well, first thing that we learned was that Jesus is superior to everyone and everything. He's unrelenting in preaching this message in the letter. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the Torah. He's superior to angels. His, his um, covenant is superior. His sacrifice is superior to the Old Testament sacrifice. He's superior to the priests. He's superior to Melchizedek. I mean, he just keeps going and going. He's telling us that Jesus is superior to everyone and everything. This is a reality that we need to know. You need to view life through that lens that Jesus is superior to everyone and everything. And then he teaches us that all of God's promises, all of His good and amazing promises, are through Jesus. And then he goes on to say, if we go back to the synagogue, then they were going to abandon Jesus and forfeit His rewards. And then lastly, that God's greatest rewards will, be, will not be received in this life, but in the next life. Therefore, faith is required in the presence. And then he goes on in chapter 11 to talk about faith, and he gives us an example of all the heroes of the faith so that they are people for us to emulate. Folks, that teaching is to give us a true perception of reality. We need to remind ourselves of those truths that every promise comes through Jesus, that the greatest rewards will come once we die and gone to be with the Lord in heaven. All of those things. And then... In chapter 12, he starts with that word, therefore. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. The writer signals that he's about to draw a conclusion here by using that word, therefore. And the basis of the conclusion is that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. He's been referring, hasn't he, to the heroes of the faith and those whose lives provide evidence for the reality that he's been describing. And so based on the testimony of the heroes and the reality that their lives represent, we should conclude, and here it is folks, this should be your expectation, that life is like a marathon race. To put it another way, the writer's logic is, is like this. He says, if reality is, as I've described, do not expect life to be comfortable or easy. No. You should expect life to be like a marathon. 
And that's the key conclusion. That's the big idea. Remember I talked about it just before we read? The big idea of this passage. But how do we know? How do we know that that's the big idea, that that's the central idea? Maybe it could be laying aside the sin that so easily entangles. Maybe it could be looking to Jesus. Maybe it could be considering his endurance. Well, it's interesting. When you look at the original Greek, it is very, very clear in the grammar there that the central thing that he wants you to do is to run the race with endurance. And we know that this is in his mind because every aspect of this short passage has to do with running. Just look at the vocab that's used. He says, strip off extra weight. That's what you do when you go running, don't you? You don't run with something heavy on you. And, and he talks about clothes that you could get entangled in. That's what you do when you prepare for a marathon. And then he talks about the heroes of the faith. Isn't it interesting? It's not a great crowd. You might think it's a pronunciation problem of mine that I'm saying crowd is cloud. But it's not. It's cloud. Do I get that? Cloud. In those days, they would often refer to a massive multitude, a big crowd, as a cloud. And so what he's picturing here is this great crowd of witnesses. And then it says that surround us, so the images of a stadium, isn't it? There are all these people in the crowd. They surround us as if in a stadium. What, uh, a stadium. what are they doing? They're being witnesses. The testimony of their lives is provided to encourage you. It's there to cheer you on. And so when you are battling, you think back to the stories of the heroes of the faith and how they kept going. And their testimony in the crowd is cheering you on in the race. And then lastly, we know that it's a marathon because he says, run with endurance. You don't need an endurance in a sprint. You only need it in a marathon. So I'm going to ask you two questions now. Are you expecting your life to be like a marathon or to be like something else? And if we're expecting our lives to be like a marathon, how should we live? And that's what the rest of this passage is all about. We need to do two things. It's very simple. We need to toss some things out, first of all. And secondly, we need to look. So we need to toss and we need to look. Let's have a look at tossing out. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. We run the marathon by doing two things, discarding extra weight and getting rid of sin. Tossing the extra weight, getting rid of sin. Let's have a look at this idea of excess weight. I've got a slide there just to show you the difference between Kipchoge and uh, Usain Bolt. And Usain Bolt carries a lot of extra muscle. He, he, his training regime obviously has quite a lot to do with even building up his arms. You can see the, the amazing biceps and definition in his arms there. But Kipchoge doesn't need that. That's going to be a, a detraction from his ability to run the marathon. All he needs is lots and lots of muscle in his core and in his legs and in his heart. And so we've got to be so sure that the things that we're carrying in life are not weighing us down and making it difficult for us to run this marathon. 
many years ago when, when Matthew was about 10 or 11, we went hiking in the Chamanis, and I was a bit anxious about it because I, I, I just wasn't sure how fit and, and ready was I, I was. I used to do a lot of hiking when I was a lot younger. Um, and what I remembered about it was that the last thing you want to happen is to get to the end of the hike and discover that you've been lugging around this particular item that you haven't used once. <laughs> because, you know, before the hike, you, could, you, you pick it up and you think, oh, no, this is, this is light. But at the end of the day, when you're climbing the hill to the hut, man, you don't want that. It feels like a ton. It doesn't feel light at all. And so we go through everything. We say, do we really need this pot? Or can we do without it? Because if we can do without it, let's toss it. But there are many things in your life and in my life that are not intrinsically evil. And there's nothing wrong with a kitchen sink, but you certainly don't want to carry it on a hike. And there are things like that in life. Things that weigh you down. They're going to weigh you down in the marathon. What's the writer's advice? Get rid of the excess weight. Toss it. It's not going to help you to finish the race. You don't need it. You may want it, but you don't need it. And just as we spend just a short moment, just ask yourself and ask the Holy Spirit to point out anything that maybe you need to toss in your life. Not, not necessarily anything that's intrinsically bad but just something that is weighing you down, that is reducing your chances of finishing the marathon. Because the most important thing is to cross the finish line. That's what marathon runners, that's the only thing they have fixed in their mind, is I've just got to cross the finish line. What would it be in your life? Maybe just think about that, reflect on it during the week. So we've got to trim down, but we've also got to strip down. We've got to toss away sinful habits. And the, the writer's pictures, writer pictures sinful habits and behavior as clothing that's going to hinder your movement and trip you up. You don't want that sort of clothing in a marathon. Just have a look there. Um, yeah, look, I Googled that, and she ran, her, she ran a five-kilometer race in a wedding dress. Good for her. But um, that's what sin is often like, isn't it? It just somehow it seems to cling to us and impede us from running the race. We want to be um, stripped down for action like that, with clothes that are not going to hold us back. But, and this is the key, folks, this is the crux. I find in my own life that when the marathon feels hard, when life feels hard and overwhelming, I'm actually tempted to do the opposite. <laughs> I, I start to look for ways to escape, I start to look for ways to cheer myself up and to dull the pain. And so, for example, um, maybe you, you, you have a bad day and you think, oh, well, you know, it was, it was a bad day, so I'm going to have a beer. Um, just to cheer me up, you know, it'll lighten, lighten my mood. And before you know it, you're having a beer at the end of every day. And then that beer isn't enough, you're having two drinks at the end of every day. And then you're starting to put on weight because you eat and you're drinking so many calories in the beer. So it's like, oh, maybe I should trim down on the calories and I'll have whiskey instead. Folks, that's how easy it is for sin to so easily entangle us. When we're feeling exhausted, when we're feeling tired in the race, that's the moment to remind ourselves, for heaven's sake, don't get tangled in, in stuff that's going to trip you up. Don't get tangled in sin. Folks, it, it really is hard to live in a way that pleases God. We shouldn't expect it to be otherwise. 
The Christian life is a marathon, and it's not a walk in the park. Therefore, we need to just toss away that sinful behavior and that extra weight. Don't carry it. However, and folks, this is a big, a big however. You can only do this. I mean, you can say to yourself, okay, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to trim off all the extra weight. I'm going to get rid of all the sinful habits. But if you try and do that in your own strength, you're not going to manage. You need to remind yourself of Jesus. We must, what does it say in the passage? We must look to Jesus. Look to his credentials. And there's four things that he gives us here. We need to look at his credentials, his joy, his position, and his endurance. Let's have a look briefly at those things. First of all, his credentials. And I love this bit. Verse 2, it says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Here are some other words for that Greek word that's translated as founder. We could replace it with the English champion. Jesus is the champion of our faith. He is the leader of our faith. He is the forerunner, the one who's gone ahead of us. He's the pathfinder. He's run the race. He's run the marathon before us. He's the initiator of the marathon. And so it says in verse 1, run the race that is set before you. How do we do that? We do that by looking to the fact that Jesus has already run the race. He knows what it's like. He knows where to go. He's the pathfinder. He knows what the pitfalls are. He can point them out to you. He is our leader. He is our champion. And so, I, I mean, I like to think, you know, a marathon race, normally the, the course is marked out by little flags. You know, Jesus has marked out that course for us. And if we just run with him, he'll be saying, yeah, I, I don't think you should be doing this. I really think you should be doing that. And encouraging us, cheering us on as we run the race. So that's the founder. And then he's also the perfecter, which means that he has accomplished fully what it would take for our faith to be a reality. He has accomplished fully what it takes for our faith to be a reality. Jesus is going to bring your faith to its intended goal, which is crossing the finish line. Yes, there are going to be hurdles, there are going to be obstacles, but he has completely removed all of the roadblocks. You are going to make it across the finish line, because Jesus is the author and the perfecter of your faith. He's accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished so that you can cross the finish line. So that's his credentials. Aren't they great? I love those credentials of Jesus. What about the joy? This is something that means a lot to me because I'm, I'm always looking for joy in my life. Um, joy is such a beautiful commodity. It's, it's priceless. And so it says in verse 2, Looking to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Can you see that it was joy that gave Jesus the strength to endure the cross? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross? The joy of the Lord is our strength. We need that joy. And Jesus needed his tank full of joy so that he could get through 
the marathon race that he ran. And incidentally, it was a much harder race than any of us would ever even dream to imagine running. But what was that joy? What was the joy that he held before him as a motivation that gave him strength to get through the sufferings on the cross? It was you. It was us. <laughs> the thought, the knowledge that he was going to spend an eternity with us in heaven. That's what, that warmed his heart. And it was worthwhile going through the suffering. Now, sometimes when you count the cost of obedience to Christ, one of the things that Satan does is he tries to heap shame on you. And he did the same thing to Jesus. You know, it was a very shameful thing to die on a cross. Only a person that society counted as completely worthless was nailed to a cross. Jesus was despised on the cross, but he turned that scorn back. Jesus counted the shame itself worthless. He counted it as something insignificant. Isn't that what verse 2 is saying? That he despised the shame? To despise the shame means to treat the shame as something of little value, as insignificant, or of little confidence. And I can assure you folks that if you make a stand on something, aligning yourself to what God teaches in Scripture, there will be times when society will accuse you and they will say, how can you be so shameful as to treat this person in that way or to believe that? We must count that shame as nothing. Consider it as nothing. I wonder if we're prepared to be ashamed for the sake of Christ. Will we weigh up the joy of an eternity with God in heaven and weigh it against the shame and consider the shame as something worthless? And if we do, it will give us strength to endure the hardship that we have in our lives for the sake of obedience to Christ. So the credentials, the joy, let's look to his position. And I keep wanting to say with each one of these points, now this is the best, because <laughs> I just love all of them. So look into Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is across the finish line, right? <laughs> and he's accepted the position which God rewarded him with, which is seating, seated, being seated at the right hand of God. This is something that we need to remember at a time like this in the history of our nation. Who is seated at the right hand of the Father? Who has power and authority and sovereignty over everyone and everything? It's Jesus. Jesus is in control. He is in control of what's going on in our nation. As I've often said, it's not as if God has wound up the earth like a clock and just left it to tick. He's intimately involved in every aspect of what is going on in our world around us. Look to that. Look to that quality of Jesus. Look to his position. And remind yourself that just as he was rewarded with that position when he crossed the finish line, so you too will be rewarded with that position when you cross the finish line. Because it says in the Bible that we will be seated with Christ in heavenly places. We will end up in, in a position of authority and government with Jesus, will be submitted to him over the new heavens and the new earth. 
And in fact, Paul is so convinced that that is going to happen, that in Ephesians he, he, he writes, you are already seated with Christ in heavenly places. The process has already started. That amazing position. Remind yourself of that. As you're starting to flag in the race, don't go and have a beer. Don't go and hit some dodgy internet site to try and escape. No, just spend some time saying, if I keep going, if I cross the finish line, my reward will be that I'll have the same position as Christ. I'll be seated with Christ in heavenly places over the new heavens and the new earth. So we look to his credentials, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We look to his joy. We look to his position. And then last of all, we just consider his endurance. It says there, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Doesn't Jesus provide an inspiring example of endurance? Life as a Christ follower is like running a marathon. And that struggle against sin never stops. I can remember once um, being told of a men's breakfast where the men were talking about some of the struggles that they had and one of the, the issues being with sexual temptation and lust. And the one young guy said, does it ever end? Do you ever outgrow it? And this old 85-year-old said, absolutely not. <laughs> it's just, it's unrelenting. Sin is going to be there. We're going to be struggling against sin all of our lives. And God calls us to obedience, you know, no matter what the consequence is. But how many of us have actually been flogged because of our obedience to God? And Jesus was. He shed his blood. His blood was spilt because he wouldn't give in to temptation. Have we ever had to resist to that point of shedding our blood? I know that my obedience has never had to, to extend to that level. I've, I've had to be obedient. Sometimes I haven't, you know, been disobedient to try and escape pain um, or the consequences of obedience to God. Other times I've been obedient and it's been tough, but I never had to have my, shed my blood yet. Thank God. And that's what he's getting at here. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. There's the danger, isn't there? The weariness, the faint-heartedness. No, I just, I don't think I'm going to be obedient in this particular area because life's already tough. Why would I want to bring extra problems into my life by being obedient to God in that particular area? In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So just before we conclude, I, I would just like to um, play a video for you. At the 1968 Mexico City Marathon, three men earned the right to stand on the victory platform, the winners of the gold, silver, and bronze Olympic medals. But for some, the reward is a personal one, the knowledge that they finished what they set out to do. A little over an hour after the winner of the marathon crossed the finish line, John Stephen Aquari of Tanzania approaches the stadium the last man to complete the journey. 
a voice calls from within to go on, and so he goes on. Thank you. 